Okay, so uh, this is, this is uh, fun. Well, well, we'll see if this is fun. So um, <laughs> my wife is laughing. <laughs> she knows what's fun about this. Um, so last night at 10 o'clock-ish, I got the call from Daryl Jones, our assistant pastor, who was scheduled to preach today, uh, that he thinks he has COVID, uh, even though he's been vaccinated. Um, he said, I'm under a pile of blankets, shivering with a fever and a sore throat. Um, I will push through tomorrow if you need me to. <laughs> I was like... No, thank you. Uh, so um, what was your regularly scheduled program uh, was that we were going to wrap up our uh, sermon series on the book of Philippians this morning, um, but we were not doing that this morning because I uh, was not going to write a sermon, a brand new sermon last night at 10 o'clock, really for your sake, but also for my sake. Um, so this is uh, what we call pulled from the archives, um, and actually providentially, or um, happenstancely, depending on your theology. Uh, this is, it's a very fitting sermon and theme for what we are, have like just sung about and what our communion will lead us into. Uh, it's, it's very fitting, um, and so I'm excited to do it, but uh, this is not uh, this, the closing of the book of Philippians, which you should also be thankful for because the sermon today was going to be about giving and tithing. That's how Paul closes Philippians. Um, so you're welcome. You don't have to sit through one of those sermons. That's why I made Daryl preach it. <laughs> um, but so here we go. So um, if you were around several years ago, you maybe will remember a version of this sermon uh, when we studied the book of First Peter. Um, but if not, here you go. Uh, what was good news then? Uh, the same Jesus that we preached about three years ago uh, in First Peter is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it, it may be an old sermon, but it is still good news, I trust. So um, here we go. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Good? It says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Before we enter this text, uh, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Jesus, um, this is what is amazing about your word, is that uh, it is, you tell us that it's alive and it's active. It, it is it is not stagnant, it is not stale, and so we can go to any text uh, that your scripture has breathed into our world um, and trust that the living God will speak to us through it, uh, show us Jesus from it, convict our hearts, um, maybe even uh, rebuke us, maybe even um, expose us, but only that you might cover us. And so guide us now as we come to your word uh, from First Peter. Um, Make Jesus uh, so clearly evident in this passage for us, we pray. Um, guide us to him and his beauty uh, in our time this morning. We pray now also uh, for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning. We forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this short little passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, contains one, or 1 Peter chapter 2, contains one imperative, one word in this passage from Peter to the church, uh, a, a must-do, an, an exhortation, an imperative, a command for the listener. And here's what he says. Uh, he says it in, in verse 2. He says, crave. 
That verb is in the imperative. Hey, church, crave something. I'm, I'm imploring you, I'm demanding you, I'm, I'm, I'm exhorting you to crave something, to long for something, to uh, wake up your appetite for something. And this is an imperative. This is not a suggestion from Peter. He's saying you must do this for your own health. He says, crave pure spiritual milk as infants crave the milk of their mothers. Crave it. We're commanded here to help inform our appetites for something. The context of this is that Peter's writing to a church that is suffering. They're being persecuted. Their life is not going the way that they want it to go. They're being attacked from within and without. Jews and Gentiles don't like them. Um, the, the, they're, they're facing opposition in the Roman Empire, this pluralistic society with this new monotheistic religion that now has this Messiah. Who are these people? We don't like them. So this church that Peter's writing to is longing for things to be different, longing for their life to feel different, longing for things to go their way, maybe some, than, it's, than it has been. And he says this to them, if you're going to survive on this journey home, if you're going to grow and grow up, if you're going to mature, if you're going to be strengthened that you will need for your own nourishment and your soul's well-being, you need to crave this. You need to crave pure spiritual milk. I am in, technically I'm in newborn season. When does newborn season end? How old do they have to be until they're not in newborn season? We're what, six months in? Are we still in newborn season? You're loving this right now, aren't you? Yes. Um, after, <laughs> after this sermon, she's going to be like, really, you could pick anyone from the archive and you pick the one about breastfeeding. Seriously. Uh, but anyway, uh, newborn season, it, we, are, we are deep into this uh, season and it is, um, there's, there's a lot of, Breast milk going on. There's a lot of feeding. This is very, there's pure spiritual milk all over my house. Anyway, he says, crave pure spiritual milk. And as Andy Bernard says from the office, speaking as a former baby, I have lots of uh, expertise on this. Do you know what's amazing? Do you know what's amazing about milk for babies? It's all they need. One source, one substance can sustain them, it can nourish them, it can grow them. They don't need anything else. They don't need supplements, they don't need vegetables, they don't need vitamins. Babies, newborns, get all they need for survival and sustenance from one place. And Peter here says, in the same way, because we all know that, in the same way, you need spiritual milk. You need one thing that will sustain you, nourish you, and give you what you need to grow and to grow up. You don't have to feed yourself on all these other things. You need one thing. What's amazing about this metaphor, if we're gonna uh, let, it, let it ruminate with us for a little bit, and it will, we will pull on this thread, is that it actually, um, this metaphor goes a few layers deep as we study this passage, that not only is it the only thing that you need, what we're gonna talk about, this pure spiritual milk. And he says you must crave it like a newborn craves their mother's milk. But also, do you know how you can know when a baby is hungry? How do you know that a baby is hungry for the one thing that they need? Maybe they are crying because they have a dirty diaper. Maybe they're crying because they have not slept well. But I promise you this, if you don't have experience with this, um, I, I can assure you of this. A baby will always let you know when it's hungry. I was taking the baby on, the walk, on a walk yesterday while I was making a call with, um, with, a, with our toddler, and we were walking around the neighborhood, and it was, and it was good. I thought we were, we were gold until about, you know, I got about halfway away, and I needed to turn around and come back, and the baby's just losing her mind. And I get the text from wifey that says, oh, by the way, feeding ha is happening in five minutes. 
Um, thank you for that warning before I left the house. But there's, it was like, oh, of course she's crying. Of course she's screaming. Of course, because babies never don't let you know when they're hungry. They will always scream at the top of their lungs to let you know that they're hungry. Well, in the same way, the instinctive crying from a baby, the eager cry from a baby, the incessant cry from a baby that they do without even trying, Paul lets us know here, hey, not only are you to crave this pure spiritual milk that I'm gonna tell you about, let me let you know how you will know when you're crying out for it. That here's, here's some indicators that you will know, this will be the clues for you to know that you're crying out because you haven't had a feeding in a while. How do Christians scream out and cry out? How do you know that you're craving spiritual milk and that you're thirsty for it and it's been maybe too long? Or maybe it's right on schedule, but you're gonna cry when it's right on schedule when you are going to let the world know that you need something that you're craving, the pure spiritual milk. He says this in verse one. Allie, will you throw this back up? Verse one. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Malice, deceit, Hypocrisy, envy, slander. All of these sins are simply how Christians cry out in their malnourishment. These are just indicators that we are underfed and it's maybe been a little while since our last feeding on pure spiritual milk. So we're gonna run through these, these five things, these five uh, cryings out, these five ways that Christians let other people know or maybe let themselves know, I'm hungry for something and here are the ways that I cry out and let the world know that I actually need, I'm craving the spiritual milk that I haven't had in four hours. First, malice. Malice is the desire to harm other people. You maybe hear that and you go, malice sounds so evil. Malice, I'm not, I don't want to wound other people. I'm not trying to physically assault other people. But how about this? Do you ever see someone and hope for them, because you're not maybe their biggest fan, or maybe they drive you crazy, do you ever hope for other people or fantasize on behalf of other people that the Lord would maybe bring them a little bit of suffering and a little bit of pain? Do you ever wish that um, you could have, uh, you could have the, the, the keys to the universe's um, highways and you could say, if I could direct this person's life, I actually think they need to suffer a little bit. And I actually wouldn't, mean to, wouldn't mind being the one that could um, impose some of that suffering on them. I wish I could have unhindered access to talk to my boss the way that I wish I could. I wish that I could let them actually know how I feel. I wish that my mom, I wish that I could let her know exactly how much I don't think highly of her. I want to inflict pain on them. Do you secretly wish that people's lives who have gone well or gone better than yours taste a little bit of pain like you have? How often do you say things like this? Well, of course, they're, of course that happened to them because everything always goes right for them. I just wish they would face a little suffering. I just wish that it would go hard for them like it's gone for me my whole life. Why did they? No, never. Okay, we'll move on to the next one. So that's none of us. So malice. How about the next one? Deceit. Deceit is the deliberate attempt to mislead other people. Now you can call that lying, but deceit is a little bit more conniving than that. This can happen in a, in a few different ways, but do you ever find yourself not telling the whole truth so that you can be perceived or seen in a certain light? Like little, little white lies that keep your reputation intact, keep your innocence or your perceived innocence intact. Do you deliberately mislead other people about you? Like you tell them things about you, what you've been doing, what time you went to bed last night, how your life's going, things are fine. Do you ever, do you ever just like stretch the truth just a little bit 
in order to mislead them and so they keep thinking about you a certain way. Next, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, um, in, in the original language here, hypocrisy, envy, um, and slander that we'll look at, all three of them, it's interesting, Peter puts them in the plural. So these are nouns, but they are in the plural form. And here's what he's getting at. He's saying hypocrisy, envy, and slander um, are in the plural because there are a whole host of ways you can do these things. There's not just one way. They're, they're, they are in the plural. It's like hypocrisies. There, there are many different ways to cry out through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when people pretend to be different than they are, especially when it comes to their motives. So hypocrisy is getting after why you and I do the things we do. What's going on way down in here in our souls that's driving up to the fruit of our lives? What's going on down at the bottom that we may be doing good things, but the motive for those things is evil? Do you ever find yourself doing good for your kids, doing good for your parents, doing good for your spouse, just so that they will behave a different way and make your life a little easier? Meaning, do you ever serve other people to get them to change how they're acting because you're tired of how they're acting? Which really means why you served them, why you did good for them, was not actually for them. It was for you. Midtown pastors call this a for you for me. Like, I'm doing this for you, but I'm actually, I'm actually doing this for me. Because I'm so tired of the way that I have to deal with you on this. Maybe if I just act nice or serve you, it will get you to change. Which means I'm really tired of dealing with this reality. So I'm going to serve you from really bad motives. Because hopefully it gives me something that I want at the end of this. So that's one way hypocrisy can show itself. But how about this? How about hypocrisy um, that breeds judgment and condemnation on people? Like this. Do you ever condemn folks for their actions when you are just as guilty of the same thing, yours is just more hidden or less destructive? Like, do you ever judge people for having an affair when you have a secret pornography addiction? Do you ever, do you ever judge people for losing their mind on their kids in public when you are just not as bold to yell at your kids on the playground as they are, but you have the same rage within you? Do you judge people that you disagree with and the easiest way to judge them is to find their blind spots that they can't see? It's really easy to look down on them, but what you're doing when you judge people for their blind spots is you are saying, I don't have any blind spots. So it's very easy for me to judge you and your blind spots that you can't see. Hypocrisies is a way we cry out for our malnourishment. Next, envy. Is everybody having fun yet? Happy fourth. Is everybody ready to go start drinking? <laughs> Here we go. Malice, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. Envy. Okay, envy. I wish one day we'll, we'll preach a whole sermon series on envy. Um, envy is wanting what other people have and not wanting what you have. So envy is the fruit of discontentment in all of its forms. You envy your sister's beauty. You envy your brother-in-law's money. You envy that person's travel schedule. You envy that person's friend group. You envy that person's house or that person's spouse. Nothing satisfies you. And when nothing satisfies you, you are constantly looking over the horizon to other people and other places and other things and other situations that would maybe finally bring contentment and satisfaction. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 goes so far as to say, and this is devastating, Everything you do in your life is driven by envy, in the broken sense. You, it, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, you got out of bed this morning because of envy. 
you will get a different life than the one that you have, and you will make yourself have satisfaction. So you got out of bed to give yourself a different life than the one you went to bed with last night, and you got out of bed wishing that your life was different than it currently is. It's a crushing experience. Almost no one in our culture publicly ever describes themselves as perfectly content. That's why social media is so toxic and so dangerous because the envy scroll, every little thing you see, everybody you see is having a better life than you at that moment. So it's easy to believe that if your life looked like their life, if you had what they had, if you could travel, if you didn't have the kids that you had, if you had the life that they had, if you had the, it would be better. It feeds the envy monster that is really, really difficult to put to bed. Proverbs chapter 27 says that anger and wrath are tough to manage, but who, O oh Lord, can handle their envy? Like anger and wrath are tough and it's hard to keep that contained, but no one can handle their envy. It's overwhelming. It's, it's, it's devastating that you, you maybe can even um, functionally handle some of your other malices, some of your other um, shortcomings, anger and lust and all these things, but envy almost no one and Proverbs 27 says it. No one can get a handle on their envy. Everyone's doing this. It's, it's too much to handle. If that weren't enough to grab our attention, he lists one more <clears throat> vice. Slander. It's literally the term <clears throat> backbiting. It means talking other people down when they're not present. Standing in judgment of other people with your words and your attitudes towards them. Politics is an easy place for this um, presents itself, almost always releases a wildfire of slander from both sides. Democrats are idiots, Republicans are idiots, everybody's idiots. Both sides tend to stand arrogantly above the other and just slander the other side. But we don't necessarily even need political drama to do that for us to reveal our slander. Here's what I would ask you. Um, how do you do with slander? How do you talk about people whenever you leave a family gathering? When you're driving, maybe it's happening this afternoon. You're going to be with family, potentially this afternoon. Um, you're going to be with mother-in-laws, and you're going to be with cousins. You're going to be with uncles. And how do you talk about the family when you leave the family gathering? Almost no one in here says, I just, I can't think of one thing wrong with how my sister-in-law handled that. I just, that my, my father-in-law always handles things in the way that I would always handle things, and I have no problems with them. Like, no, no, one is leaving, no one is leaving the family gathering singing the praises of other people. It's all slander. It's a litany of what everyone else is doing wrong just, and just destroying them for why they keep doing things the way that they do it. Peter here says that those five evils, if any of those evils are present in your life, it's simply a revelation that you're malnourished. It's been too long since your last feeding. These are the human ways that we scream like a baby. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All of these evils are simply how Christians cry out in their malnourishment. It's like my, my newborn on the walk yesterday. She's just letting me know she's hungry. And it sounds, you know, the shrill and the shriek, you, you know, I have, to feed, I have to go get this baby some food or she will not stop doing this. Ours is more subtle doesn't mean it's any less devastating or desperate, but these five things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, the ones that are listed here, we could talk about other ones, but these are the ones that Peter wants to use for us, are simply the baby on the walk and how we're crying out. 
I've got to eat something. I'm starving. It's very evident I haven't had what I need to satisfy this place, this craving in me that is hungry for food. So please hear this. Peter is not shaming us for these. He's not saying, if you have any of these, you need to clean that up and get, get with it or leave, ha, remove all of these things from your life and get serious about your, your, your faith and your discipleship. He's saying, hey, if you see any of these things, it means you're hungry. It means you haven't eaten in a while. It means this is how you're crying out. Now, in your hunger, know what you're hungry for. Crave pure spiritual milk. This spiritual milk will mature you, it will sustain you, it will nourish you, and it will grow you. And guess how long it will last? Three hours. And then you'll need to eat again, and that's okay. But at least hear yourself crying, because everyone else can. And everyone else knows that you need to eat something. And so would you be honest enough with you to know, I'm, I'm really craving this milk. If any of these things are present in my life, it just means I'm hungry. So what is the pure spiritual milk? What is he talking about, and how do we drink it? He's, he tells us in verse two and three. Allie, we throw this up there. Verse two and three. He says, like newborn babies, again the theme of the morning, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, so there's this interesting thing going on at the Greek grammar level of this sentence. Verse two and three. When he says... <clears throat> He's trying to help us understand when he says crave pure spiritual milk like newborn babies, he's leaving that analogy out there, pure spiritual milk. The reader's going, okay, what is the pure spiritual milk? The second half of, of this, those two verses, he's telling you what the milk is. The end of the sentence is modifying and explaining what the milk is. It's, it's referring back to the beginning of the sentence. So let me read it one more time. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. What will grow you up and nourish you and sustain you until your next feeding? It is the milk of God's goodness. He says you have to keep craving it. You have to keep drinking it. You have to keep crying out for it. You have to keep feeding yourself on it. The milk of God's goodness believing that the God of the Bible is a good God. And this should encourage you that Peter is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church. He says that in the opening sentence of his book. He's writing to believers. Doesn't mean that unbelievers don't need to know that God is good. He's writing to people who already know that God is good. They have professed faith in a good God at some point in their story. He's saying to those people, that's the milk you have to keep drinking. You have to keep coming back and keep craving it and keep drinking it and keep letting it nourish you and keep letting yourself know that's what you're hungry for. That's the milk that you and I have to be drinking and digesting and ingesting into our souls in order to be nourished like a newborn baby is nourished by its mother's milk. And here's, what, here's what's crazy. Again, remember this analogy. This is what makes biblical analogies, like the more you meditate on them, it, like, it helps it adds new depth to the truth that they are trying to teach you about. Remember what we said about, about um, milk for newborns. Remember how it's, it's all they need? They don't need anything else. They, they don't need other vitamins or other supplements. They don't need to be, have, have things added to their diet. This pure spiritual milk of the goodness of God may be all that you need to sustain you and nourish you and grow you. And not only that, 
Just like a newborn baby craves this thing that it, that it needs and it's the only thing that it needs, do you know why the baby is crying out for it? Do you know why the baby is craving it? Because God made the baby to crave it. So you use that analogy for the spiritual milk. Do you know that God made you to crave his goodness? So when you're crying out for it, you're acting in accord with how you were made. You're screaming out for the spiritual milk to know, you have to drink down the milk of God's goodness to know that he's good and it can feed you and sustain you and nourish you and you were made to crave it. You were made to drink it. Your soul craves the knowledge of God's goodness like a baby craves milk. It craves to know it, it craves to feast on it, it craves to drink it down and know that it's real. So if it's been a while since your last feeding, your soul is crying out. It's starving to know that God is good. So let me ask you, when you look at your life, when you look at the storyline of your life, when you look at the world around you in your life, very simple question, but it may sting, and I want you to pause and answer this in your own heart. Is God good? And maybe in like the ethereal, like meta sense, you would go, yes, God is good, but make it a lot more personal. Has God been good to you? And if he has been good to you and you go, yeah, I think I would stand and say that God has been good to me, here's maybe a scarier question. Do you believe that God will be good to you? Or how much time do you spend craving and dying and longing and pining to know this is how my life has been and it's got these parts of the story that okay, okay, I've wrestled, I've wrestled, I've wrestled. I don't know that I trust him going forward. I don't know that I believe he's still gonna be good to me. I know many of you have this story or know people that do. Sadly, it is a very common story, but I was talking with another friend this week who shared with me about um, some childhood trauma, the trauma of being sexually abused as a child. And even if you weren't raised religiously, and even if your childhood trauma isn't sexual in nature, here's what I know about all storylines like that, trauma, traumatic storylines from our childhood and from our past. The storyline of our pain always, whether or not you claim to be religious or not, the storyline of our pain always turns our head to the skies and makes us believe something about ourselves and about God. You have a narrative about God that your pain has helped you write. And so you believe something about God based on what has happened to you. You have an idea of who he is and what he's like based on your story. And here's, here's, what, here's, here's, a, here's a generic but very common, understandable narrative from our own stories of pain and trauma. I must not be the kind of person that God thought valuable enough to protect from that trauma. I have this trauma, I have this wound, I've done some work in it, I've had to look at it, or maybe I can't even look at it, I don't wanna talk about it, because here's what I believe about it. I must not be the kind of person that God thought valuable enough to protect from that kind of pain. If I was valuable enough, he would have stopped it from happening. What our abuse and our trauma and our pain convinces us of is that God has a stance towards us and it's not a good stance. Is it possible that every sad and hard and broken storyline in your life is trying to convince you of the same thing? God has a stance towards you, and it's not good. Medical diagnosis of you or a family member, 
troubles that your children face or cause, the heartache of your own singleness and loneliness, the presence of poverty and injustice and sin in the world? Is it possible that any and all of those storylines are gonna be used by your enemy, Satan, to convince you that God isn't good? He's taking the pain of those things, he's taking the, 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 um, the injustice of those things, and he's writing a story with them. And he's trying to convince you that the story says that if these things are true, and they are true because you lived through them, if this has been the story of your life or if this is the story of the world or if you're currently walking through a heartache, it is real and it is true. So if these things are true, here's what Satan wants to convince you of. There's no way your God is good. He may be good to everybody else. He has absolutely not been good to you. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God creates this majestic world, paints on the blank canvas, speaks the world into existence, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and there's shalom, and it's good, and it's right. And he says that, everything he makes, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good when he makes man and woman in his image. But Adam and Eve are told in this beautiful garden not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're obeying and they're walking with God in the cool of the garden and they're enjoying God's good creation and they're naming the animals and they're enjoying each other's nakedness with no shame and it's amazing. And then along comes this serpent who begins to speak with Eve in the garden, the manifestation of our enemy. And this sinister serpent at first doesn't try to convince Eve to eat the fruit by telling her how good the fruit tastes. He also doesn't try to at first convince her to eat the fruit by telling her how wonderful her life will be if she eats it. No, the very, very first thing that the enemy comes and tries to convince Eve of is this. The first thing he says to her is this. Did God really say that about the fruit? He just plants this little seed of doubt about, wait, is that, did he say that? And so then Eve goes, yes, he did, he said this. Yes, he said those words to us, do not eat the, the fruit of this tree. And, and Satan goes, okay, well, if he said it, you know that he's holding out on you, right? You know that the reason why he's barring you from that, you know that the reason why he doesn't want you to do that is because he's, he's not for you. He's holding way back on you. He, he's given you this law not because he cares about you, he's given you this law because he doesn't, he doesn't want good for you. The God who commanded you to do this isn't good, and he certainly doesn't have good intentions with you, Eve. That the thing that Eve had to believe before she committed the first sin, the thing that she had to believe about her God was that he's not good. And then if you fast forward uh, the storyline of scripture into the New Testament, you get to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew chapter four, he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. We're not gonna go into each of them, but as a holistic 30,000 foot view of, of that interaction between Jesus and Satan, all of the temptations that are aimed at Jesus by Satan are aimed at Jesus, trying to get Jesus to believe that the God who sent him on this mission was not good. You can't trust this God, and you can get what you want, Jesus, apart from this God, because he's not good. In other words, Jesus, Satan is saying, surely you don't believe that God is good for you if this is what he sent you to do. So think about this now. The two most, it's not the only time Satan appears in scripture, but they are the two archetypal passages of our enemy. 
the two archetypal sections, opening pages of Scripture and opening pages of the New Testament, the, thing, the, the stories that tell us in Scripture about our temptation from our enemy and how our enemy works and what kind of arrows he always uses. Here's, here's how they're related. Sorry, my mic is being pulled down. God's not good to me. Um, here's, what, here's what Satan is trying to convince everybody of. Satan uses every arrow. Satan uses every storyline. Satan uses every interaction. Satan is in your ear constantly trying to get you to believe that God is not good. It's what he's doing in the garden. It's what he's doing in the wilderness with Jesus. Everything Satan is working on in your life is meant to convince you of this one thing. God is not good to you. If you're still wrestling with this sin, it's your fault that God has, and God is punishing you for those things. If you have these fear fantasies about the future, you should believe them because God is not going to be good to you there. If these things of, of, of trauma and pain and, and heartbrokenness have happened in your life so far, you need to use those to believe what is really true, believer. God is not good to you. If he was good, none of those things would be true about your life. And Satan is so crafty and so good at what he does that he doesn't make up stuff about your life. He uses real things that you've actually lived through and real possibilities that could happen because of what you see in front of you. And he's going, hey, let's talk about the evidence in the courtroom, believer. Let's conclude some things together, believer, about this evidence. If this evidence is all on the table, and it is, then you also must conclude with me, believer, that your God is not good to you. How could he be good to you? How could he continue to be good to you if you're still struggling with this? How could he continue to be good to you if this is the heartache he's gonna let you walk through right now? Which is why Peter says, if you've placed faith in him and you have been born into this living hope in this new family, believer, then you, you know. You've actually already tasted it, he says. God is good to you. And so in order to be sustained and nourished in this exile life, in order to, to withstand the assault of the enemy who hates you, you're gonna have to keep drinking from that source you will only be sustained in this life by the milk of God's goodness. You will not make it if you don't drink of that over and over and over again. And here's what's, here's what's more interesting. And I, I know that there are storylines of newborn mothers in here who can't produce their own milk for their babies, so I, I, I realize that is a tender place. But here's, here's, what's, here's what's amazing about um, the relationship between newborns and their moms. The babies get their nutrients from the mother herself. <laughs> it's amazing. Like we got to experience, we all got COVID in February, our baby was a month old. Our baby has the antibodies because she got it from her mom. Like the, the, the nutrients that a mom will be able to, to literally ingest into the baby, the mom is literally giving part of herself away. The baby is feeding on the mother, taking from the mother in order to nourish the child, in order to feed and sustain the child, the mother will go to exhausting lengths, even at great cost to herself. The mother is giving herself away for the sake of the child. And here's what's amazing about it. And I, I don't spend my time talking to breastfeeding mothers, but I've talked to one a lot. Here's what I know. It's a, it's a joy to do it. It's exhausting and it's draining but it is a joy to do it. Do you know that your God is infinitely more motherly than that? Dozens of references in scripture 
to God referring to himself with motherly tones. He loves to mother his children. God the Father has very motherly qualities also because man and woman are made in his image. Do you know that the God of the Bible is infinitely more committed to nourishing you with his goodness and he does it because it is a great joy for him to do it? In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a prophet looking ahead to the day the Messiah would come and then looking even beyond that to the day when all things would be made new. Um, But he's looking ahead to the day when the Messiah will come and will radically alter the cosmos when Jesus comes. He doesn't know his name. He just knows he's the anointed one, the Messiah. And in these promises of the Messiah that would come, Jeremiah lists in chapter 32, it's actually 31, 32, and 33, but the, the new covenant, the new day, the dawn of the new day, what that will be like when the Messiah comes. And this is what Jeremiah describes. Listen to the heart of God towards his people in the new covenant, which we belong to because Jesus has purchased it for us. Listen to this. Jeremiah 32, he says this, I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. Yes, I will rejoice in doing good to them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will rejoice in doing good to them. Sounds like a mother with her newborn. Not only does at great cost to himself does he do good to them and will never stop doing good to them. Listen to what he says. It brings him great joy. I will rejoice in doing good to them even at great cost to myself. And so what is God's goodness? How would we from this passage describe the goodness of God? Well, it's helpful that we have this whole list of evils here because at the beginning of the passage in verse one, verse three, when it says you have tasted the Lord's goodness, What he's trying to say is the goodness of God is the complete opposite of those evils listed in verse one. God is not malicious, he's not deceitful, he's not hypocritical, he's not envious, and he doesn't slander you. He's the opposite of being malicious. He's seeking your good, not seeking to destroy you. He's the opposite of being deceitful. He's not, you don't ever have to wonder how he feels about you. He's not, he's not um, masquerading and, and trying to deceive you to make you think a certain way about him. You will, you will get the real good him every time. He's not hypocritical. He's never lied to you. He's never been fake with you. He's never worked from evil, hypocritical motives towards you. Get this one. If, if envy for us is the product of us being discontent with what we have, and God is not envious, God is, whole, is, is righteously jealous, that's a different topic. This, this is saying this to us. God's not discontent with you. He doesn't want another bride. He doesn't want another set of children. He's not discontent wishing that he had saved a bunch of other people who would have been better and made him more content. And then the last one, slandering. If God's the opposite of slandering, God never speaks ill of you. He never talks behind your back. He never speaks down about you and uses a secret place in his heart to judge you when he's not with you. When Peter says this in verse three, the end of this little section, when he says, um, now that you have tasted that God is good, the, the way that that phrasing is written, and New Testament writers do this all the time, New Testament writers are constantly plucking out phrases from the Old Testament because it's the same God, Peter is plucking out a phrase and a term and a, and, a, and a reference to Psalm chapter 34. 
Psalm chapter 34, God has saved King David from enemies and peril and danger, people trying to kill him. And David can't get over the fact that he's been saved. He can't get over the fact that he's been rescued and redeemed against his enemies. And he's singing about the Lord's deliverance and he's singing and declaring about how much God has done for him. And then David gets to the crescendo moment of Psalm 34 and this is what he says. Verse eight, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter's using that reference, oh taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, now that you have tasted and seen that God is good, Christian. What's interesting about the metaphor of taste that we've talked about all morning and, and eating, David could have used any um, sensory metaphor. Oh hear and believe that the Lord is good. Oh touch and feel that the Lord is good. But he says, oh taste and see. David knows that tasting is the most intimate and the one that involves the deepest ingestion. David is using a bodily, sensory experience to try to explain a spiritual one, and here's what he's doing. You tasting delicious food, your, your, your actual physical body being, being um, satisfied and, and enriched and nourished with an extravagant, delicious meal. David would say is as close as he can get to explain what it's like for your soul to be convinced that God is good. The deepest part of you that believes that God is good, when your soul believes that, when your soul believes that God is good and God is good to you, it's as satisfying as when your body craves and then eats and digests a rich meal. That's why we practice communion, which we're gonna do today. Because we're trying, to ta- we're trying to get our sensories uh, like overload. Like I need to, t- I, you tell me that, that God is good. You tell me that Jesus has given himself for me. But my, I need to know that more than just in my head. I need to taste it. I need to feel it. I need to, I need to experience it with, with as much of my sensors, as, as my sensories, my sensory experiences that I can. I need something that's real and tangible and that actually goes into my lips and goes down into my body and my body ingests this goodness. I need to know that it's that real and that true. And here's what communion is saying to us. The body and blood of Jesus is the greatest thing your soul has ever tasted. Because here's what the body and blood of Jesus prove to you. here's Here's how the work of Jesus collides with our passage today. Communion is proof, Jesus' body and blood, that God has been infinitely good to you. If you believe what what communion represents for you, that Jesus had his body ripped apart for you and his blood shed for you for the remission of all of your sins, if you believe that while you were his enemy, he came after you so that he might become your father, if you believe that at great cost to himself, he was torn apart from his heavenly palace for your sake because it's what you needed, you can't eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus and truly digest it and not believe that God's good. And here's why we need communion regularly, is that sometimes all we have to cling to in our suffering and to try to believe that God is good is the body and blood of Jesus. Because I, 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 I dare to say this to you, it's scary to say, I don't wanna say it to myself, but here's what is true, and the Bible screams at us. Sometimes none of the storylines in your life will be able to be used to convince you that God is good. You will walk through wilderness seasons. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in those seasons, you will have nothing in your life to convince you that God has been good to you. You cannot look at the way your life is going to try to believe that God is good. And so what do you need? You need the body and blood of Jesus. 
to convince you that God has always been good to you and he will never stop doing good to you and he rejoices in doing good to you even when your life doesn't feel like it. You cannot look at the cross of Jesus. You cannot ingest it. You cannot digest it and truly let it wreck you and still believe that God isn't good. At great cost to himself, he gave you what you needed and it was a great joy for him to do so. And so as we crave this pure spiritual milk, um, needing to know that God is good, here, here's, here's a very gentle invitation. Here's a, here's a way to be gentle with yourself even. Like babies, do you know how often babies have to feed a day? <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Ask my wife. But like babies that need to feed multiple times a day, you should not feel bad about craving this when you wake up and then by lunchtime you're not sure about it and then in your meeting after lunch you're still not sure about it and then the news that you get at home that night, like you may need to be drinking this all the time. Like babies, it's okay to, it's okay to still be hungry. It's okay that, it's, that like you're still not sure about it. You were sure about it at church that morning. You were sure about it when you were with your friends. Man, God is so good to me. But then you get a phone call from mom and you're not sure about it anymore. Great. Babies have to eat all the time. And the more you drink it, here's what's amazing, here's what's beautiful. The more you drink it, the more you'll crave it. And the more you crave it, the more you'll drink it. And when you drink it, while you, for the, for the little bit of time that you drink it, here's, here's why we gather every Sunday, here's, here's why, th- what this little window of corporate worship is meant to do. It's meant for you to drink the milk of God's goodness. And you may not, rem- you'll, you're going to need it again in a week. You're going to need it again tomorrow. But here's, what, here's, what is go- here's the hope that we would begin to experience while we're here in this place. Is that wh- when babies are drinking their milk, guess what they are? They are satisfied. And they may leave this place, you may leave this place and not be satisfied. But for this little window, you could drink the milk of God's goodness. And you could believe it right now. And be satisfied while you're drinking it. So here's my challenge to you today. Would you risk believing that God is good? not asking you to feel like God is good. I'm asking you to crave, knowing that what you crave is to believe that God is good and then drink it down. As we sing, as we pray, as we nourish ourselves with communion, would you risk believing that God is good even if none of the storylines of your life are telling you that right now? And for this little moment of a feeding, for the next little bit, to believe that God is good may satisfy you for this little bit of time. That's our hope this morning as we come to the table. So would you pray with me and then we'll, we'll fence the table of communion. Jesus, um, you have been infinitely good to us. Sometimes the circumstances um, wage war with that belief. So as we come to your table, would you guide us now? Would you, would you help us to drink it down, be satisfied in this time? Forgive us for our crying out that proves how malnourished we are. Forgive us for our slander and our deceit and our hypocrisy and our envy. Forgive us, Jesus. Nourish us with yourself and help us to believe that it is a great joy for you to do so in your name. Amen.